I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We are in a, a series this summer on the book of Acts, <clears throat> and um, we've sort of been jumping around in this book. Last time we looked at Acts, we were in chapter 5. We've already looked at chapter 6 as well. We've looked at chapter 3, I think, a couple of times. Pastor Young Kwong has looked at it. And we want to revisit uh, chapter 3 this morning, particularly looking at the topic of uh, money and how the book of Acts views money. And so we're going to read the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 3 this morning, page 1694 in your pew Bibles, and hopefully you'll keep those open as we... um, as we walk through the message this morning. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, last week the Powerball jackpot broke a billion dollars. I think there was a winner somewhere out in Los Angeles. Yesterday the Mega Millions jackpot broke a billion dollars. And whenever that happens, there seems to be a lot of white noise around the lottery. All sorts of questions, right? Have you bought a ticket? What would you do with a billion dollars? Are you going to buy a ticket? I heard one person respond to that last question. He said something like this. "Uh, I have almost as much chance of winning the lottery by not buying a ticket as I do by buying a ticket. So I'm probably not going to purchase one. And I think most of us get that. At least most of us here um, get that. And yet, we hear that other voice in our minds as well, kind of those competing thoughts, right? But you can't win if you don't have a ticket at all. You can't win then. And then here's the one that always seems to get to me. But just think of how much good you could do if you won the lottery. Think of how much good you could do with a, with a billion dollars I mean, think of all the people that you could help. Think of all the programs you might be able to start right here in in Milwaukee, right? Maybe we could house uh, more of the homeless. We We could feed all the hungry. 
We could put a dent in racism. Think of all the good that we could do. <clears throat> That's the one that always gets me, you know, driving in the direction of, of one of those gas stations. Friends, this is a view of money that's been around just about forever. It's the view that, that money has the power to heal. Money has the power to heal. And it's that view that's exposed, I think, here in Acts chapter 3. Here we meet a beggar that, that hasn't walked since birth, and we can only imagine all the needs that that's led to in this man's life. So, when he's looking for some kind of help there at the temple gate, what does he ask for? He asks for money. Why? Well, we all know. Money has the power to make everything better, right? Money has the power to make everything better. Peter has a different view of things, of course. Silver or gold I do not have, he says, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, get up, and walk. And with those words, Peter alerts us, not just the beggar, but all of us, to the fact that there is another healer out there. Another one with the power to heal, and that is none other than Jesus Christ. Those words of Peter, I think, give us a window into three things that we're going to look at this morning. I think they give us a window into money itself. They give us a window into the name of Jesus. And they also give us a window into our testimony as the church. So let's look at those this morning. First of all, Peter's words give us a window into money. And what they tell us very clearly is that money does not have the power to heal. It does not have the power to heal. At the same time, it does have power. Money is a, is a very deceptive kind of thing. It's a deceptive kind of power. It shouldn't surprise us that uh, if Luke wrote the book of Acts, which I think he did, it shouldn't surprise us that the first example he gives us of all the miracles that the disciples were doing in the early church, the first example he gives us is one that's about money. After all, if you look at Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel is full of stories that call our attention to this intriguing dynamic between money and the kingdom of God. It's Luke who tells us about the rich fool who spent all of his money bigging, building bigger barns. And it's Luke who tells us the, uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's Luke that tells us about Zacchaeus and his conversion, the tax collector, right, who, who meets Jesus and suddenly he's giving away half of everything he owns to take care of the poor. And that's really, it's really just the tip of the iceberg if you were to look at Luke's gospel. And so when Luke gives us an example of the kind of miracles that these disciples were doing, again, it shouldn't surprise us that his first one is dealing with money. Money carries an aura of power. And, and it's a familiar aura, I think, to most of us. About two months ago, our water heater broke at the house. Now, water heaters are not inexpensive. They... They carry a good price tag with them, but 
they're not the price of a new Porsche, right? What I'm getting at is we can afford a new water heater. But the amount of time and energy I poured into simply purchasing a water heater was unreasonable. It was crazy. All the questions I was asking, well, you know, should we get a name brand or an off brand? Should I just, should I just ask a plumber or, or hire a plumber to come in and do the whole job or should I go to one of those big box stores and try and do it myself? What do you think? And how much research should I do on the quality of these things? I don't want it to break again in, in five years and then we've got to do it all over again, right? Now, again, we can afford a new water heater. Jackie told me that a number of times. Just get it done. Just go buy one. It should not have been as difficult a process for me as it was. And yet, money just has this mysterious power over us. You know, if I spend money on this, then I can't spend it on something else. Money is security to us. If I have less money, I have less security. We don't know what the future holds. Money is valuable. We have to be prudent. We have to be responsible with it. All of this stuff. And you begin to feel the power that money possesses. Whether you have it or you don't. It even affects the way that we read the Bible sometimes, doesn't it? Um, the book of Acts, if you begin to read it, it it's full of stories about money. Uh, we read one a couple of weeks ago, Ananias and Sapphira and, and Barnabas, right? And they were really examples of, of the stories you find in Acts 2 and Acts 4 about how the church was living together, right? And you read those incredible texts there where it says the believers had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. They gave to anyone as he had need. Now let me ask you this. It's a beautiful text. Have you ever studied it with a group of people? Have you ever had a Bible study with that text or a life group with that text? And let me just ask you, if, if you have, how long did it take for somebody to say, you think the Bible is teaching communism here? Because if it's teaching communism... I'm just letting you know, I'm not giving away everything that I own, right? We're not going to be communists, let's just study a different text. That's what I mean by the power of money. It prevents us even from hearing the good news about how unique and how different the kingdom of God is from anything that we've ever experienced before. We can't even begin to hear the message because money has this crazy and unmerited power over us. But money does not have the kind of power that it professes to have. It does not have the power to heal. Money is a pretender. It's deceptive. And too often, friends, we have bought into its lie. In our world today, money is pretty much the answer to everything. Every problem that comes along, the only way we seem to know how to fix it is to throw money at it. 
We've got a problem with education, let's spend more money. We've got a problem with housing or hunger, let's spend more money. We've got a problem with abuse over here, let's spend some money. It's become our only answer, our one answer to every issue. Money will fix it. If we just spend more money, we'll fix it. Peter and John nip that idea in the bud as the kingdom of God begins its advance under our Lord and Savior, the ascended Jesus Christ, as the kingdom begins its advance, they proclaim that message loud and clear right at the beginning, right from the start. The kingdom of God will not come via the power of money. The healing that money brings is always temporary. It's always partial. It cannot be more than that. It's temporary and partial. We all know the text uh, that you find in, in Acts 4.12, or I shouldn't say we all do, but many of us do. It's this text that says, Salvation is found in no one else. There is no, under, uh, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, in the Greek, that's reading the masculine version, but there's also, the, the words can also be read in the neuter. And Luke could be saying this, salvation is found in nothing else. In nothing else. There is nothing else, no other name by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. Not even money can save us. There is nothing else other than Jesus Christ, that can save us. And friends, I think we know that. I think we know that. Think of a daughter who's alienated from her father. He's always been critical of her. He's always been distant. He hasn't given her his time or attention. And he's, he's sort of sanctioned that distance that's developed between them. It's okay with him and he wants it to be okay with her as well and then one day he regrets all of this and so what does he do he rewrites his will and he leaves his daughter a double portion of everything what do you think when he dies and they read the will you think everything is going to be good with her you think that she'll feel loved finally? That she'll finally feel reconciled? Or do you think she'll feel even more misunderstood and alone? Money can't heal. Not the things that really ail us. The beggar in Acts 3 is, is looking for money, not, not because necessarily it can heal, but because it's the only answer that he knows. It's the only answer that he knows, and it's the only answer that many of us know. And so Peter introduces us to another answer, and that's the name of Jesus. And friends, his words again give us a window not only into money, but also into the name of Jesus. If you look at the text, it says... Um, Peter says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk, right? And then you look at the response. 
And it says that the beggar jumped to his feet. He jumped to his feet. And just for good measure, if you didn't get it the first time, Luke repeats himself and he says, the man went into the temple courts walking and jumping and praising God. Now, it's that word jumping that kind of sticks out to me, right? For one, we know that this man has never walked. He's been lame from birth. We know from chapter 4.22 that he's in his 40s. So he's in his 40s now. He's never walked before. And all of a sudden, instantly, he can jump up and he starts leaping around. Now, I know I'm getting older, okay? I'm 59. Lately, I've been spending a lot of time on the floor with my grandkids. And let me tell you, I don't leap up anymore, all right? I've been walking my whole life, but getting up takes a lot of moaning and groaning and sometimes even help from the kids. Like, we're never going to get Grandpa up again. And so when I read this text, here's a guy who's never walked before, and all of a sudden he's leaping up. It catches my attention, and I think it ought to catch yours as well. What's Luke trying to tell us here? What he's telling us is that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Then the lame will leap like a deer. What, what Luke is telling us is this is a fulfillment of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is visiting this man. He is finding the fullness of healing that comes with the kingdom of God, the full healing of the kingdom of God. He's finding resurrection in Jesus Christ, the whole deal, the full deal. And friends, that's what we have to understand, that the name of Jesus Christ does not bring a partial, a temporary healing. It brings full healing, full healing in every way. It brings healing to our relationships. It reconciles us to God. It reconciles us to one another. It brings healing to every part of us, heart, mind, body, soul, interior, exterior, private healing, social healing. The name of Jesus heals all of it. It's complete. It's comprehensive. It's resurrection. Now, you might be thinking, well, well wait a minute, because, because I believe in the name of Jesus, and I, I haven't found full healing yet. I mean, my paycheck doesn't always cover the bills. The doctor can't figure out what ails me. My car never starts when I need it most. You know, where's the fullness of the kingdom? I haven't found it yet. And, and friends, this is where we have to understand how Scripture works, right? This beggar is a pointer to something larger, He's a pointer to the full healing that comes with the kingdom of God. And that healing begins now. It carries through all the way into the new creation when we will be completely made new. But don't imagine that it all happens at once. Sure, the man was leaping instantly. That doesn't mean that that suddenly his house became a mansion and all of his cupboards were full and, and he never had a problem after that again. The point is that Jesus' healing carries us all the way into the new creation when, yes, that full and complete healing will actually be there. But we need faith. And Jesus gives us that faith 
the faith to trust that that kind of healing actually lies ahead. But what this means is there is no magic here. Okay? Just by putting your faith in Jesus is not going to make all your problems go away. In fact, what Jesus begins to do is to dig into everything and every area of our life that is not right. It's sometimes a painful process as he begins to expose our sins and the things that have brought okay, the kingdom of Satan and not the kingdom of Jesus into our lives. When you look at, as you continue to read on this text, when you look at the message that Peter brought to the Jews, hear what he says. What he says is, you, my fellow Jews, you put Jesus to death. You put Jesus to death. It's your fault. Not, not because you're Jews, okay? He says, my fellow Jews, my fellow sinners, you put Jesus to death, you sided with Pilate, and you need to repent. That's where it all starts. You need to repent. And the word that's used here for repent is to change your mind. Okay? I'll try and give you a, a not-so-good illustration, but it's all I could come up with. I'm a, I'm a Milwaukee Bucks fan, all right? Since I was a little kid, I've loved the Milwaukee Bucks. And, and if you know the Milwaukee Bucks, we've not always had such great history, Okay? And, and there are certain players in the NBA who've always been sort of a thorn in our flesh. And when I see them, it's like, I can't stand you because I don't like the way you play and, and there's no justice in this league. The refs are always on your side, that kind of thing. Michael Jordan was one of those people. Marcus Smart is still one of those people, okay? Um, I know I'm being recorded, but I don't think I'm ever going to meet him. The thing you have to know about the NBA is people are always changing teams, right? And if Marcus Smart were to be traded to the Bucks tomorrow, I would love him, okay? I would think everything this guy does is wonderful. <clears throat> this is what Peter is saying to the Jewish leaders around him that day. He is saying, you have thought about Jesus Christ all wrong, you have envied him, okay? You've been jealous of him. You have wanted to kill him. He angers you, everything that he does. And you have to change your minds about who Jesus really is. You have to come to see him in a different light, that he is actually your Messiah, that he is actually a person that's filled with the power of God, that his name is a beautiful name, a wonderful name. That his name is mercy and love. And Peter says, once, once you repent like that, then God will come near. And you will recognize that God is in Jesus Christ himself. 
you will recognize that Jesus is the power to redeem every part of your life. And it all begins with that repentance. Jesus Christ is the power to raise us up. Peter makes it clear. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's been raised up by God, and that's his intention for us. It's not to make us a little bit better. It's to make us new. It's to make us undead and now living and resurrected. It's healing beyond anything that we can imagine. So Peter's words give us a window into money. They give us a window into the name of Jesus and the healing that he seeks to bring us. They also give us a window into our testimony as a church, the kind of testimony that we ought to bear. When we consider our testimony as a church, friends, what we have to understand is that the church is here to bring the power of the name of Christ Jesus into the world, to intersect with our world. We stand in the footsteps of Peter and John, okay? We're not here, like I said, to offer partial and temporary solutions. We are here to offer the full resurrection from the dead that is available in Jesus Christ. Jesus is a risen Savior, and he offers us nothing less than full resurrection. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that as a church we stop giving money. This doesn't mean that our deacons should never help anyone with their physical needs. They should never give money to those who are in need. That's not what I'm saying here. What this means is we don't give out money as if it has a power unto itself. As if it itself is the answer. As if it has the power to heal us. Money only has true power when it's given into the service of the true king. Okay? Money only has true power when it's given into the service of the true king. That's what you find in Acts 2 and 4. That's where we find those beautiful examples of the church. What's happening there is that the early church is taking their, the money that's been offered in service to Jesus Christ, and they're sharing it with each other in a way that stomachs are filled, and the church is unified. It's bound together, rich and poor, slave and free. They're taking care of each other. They're loving each other. They're following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They're using their money in service to the King, Jesus Christ. And the church always has to make that clear. That clear. We are purveyors of the name of Jesus. We are purveyors of the resurrection that comes in his name. We are not purveyors of partial and temporary solutions. And that's where we sometimes get confused. Because we live in a world where people, like the beggar in Acts 3, they know only the power of money. And they're only familiar with partial and temporary solutions. And so people will wander in, they'll come to our worship services, they'll come to mops, 
some Tuesday morning, they'll come to youth group, they'll come to your life group, and they may come looking for less than resurrection. They may come looking for five simple steps to improve their marriages. They may come for advice on how to bring more stability into their families. They may come seeking advice on how to at least appear put together. Like we don't have any problems because all you people in the church, you seem to look so put together. That might be what they come looking for. But that's not our job. That's not what we're giving out. That's not why the church is here. We're here to give people Jesus and to use all of those other things in service to him to help people find resurrection. Friends, and I'll wrap things up with this, um, this example. Thomas Aquinas reportedly long ago told the Pope that the church had become incapable of saying either of the things that Peter said. Incapable of saying either silver and gold have we none, or in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And what he meant was that as the church amassed more and more money and possessions and influence in the world, that it perhaps forgot the most important thing of all, Jesus. With that in mind, Scott Jose makes the observation that in our world today, you can often compare churches to restaurants. And what he means by that is, you know how things go with restaurants, right? All of a sudden, there's a new restaurant on the corner, and for some unknown reason, it's the hot, it's the in place to be. And everyone is going there. You really can't explain it. But then, after a while, there's another new hot place, and everyone is going there. There's this little restaurant in Tosa. There's this little place in Brookfield. There's this place on the lake. And we just sort of run from one to the other to the other. And churches, he says, can be like that too. All of a sudden, for no apparent reason, one particular church just seems like the place to go. And you hear things like, well, we love, you know, they've got great parking and they've got great programs and they have stuff for the kids and they show video clips during the sermons and they have a latte bar and they have a really relaxed atmosphere and the pastor is kind of humorous. And churches all of a sudden get hot and they're the places to be. But then after a little time, all of a sudden, they're not as hot, and things begin to level off and sometimes even decline. And then there's another hot church on the corner. Let me just ask you if that's somewhat accurate. Do you think that's what the people said about the first church of Jerusalem? Well, we came for the parking. Or we came for the pastor. We came to have our felt needs met. And they were doing it. Or do you think they might have said, we came here because this is where we found Jesus. 
There was just a lot of Jesus here. Lord, we came here because we found the fruit of the Spirit here. We came here because we found resurrection here. Resurrection in the name of Jesus. Friends, that's our testimony. Partial and temporary solutions you can find anywhere. Silver and gold have we none. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Find resurrection in him. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would fill your church. We need nothing else, nothing else than the fullness of your name dwelling in this place, convicting us of our sins, healing us of all that ails us, and giving us life where once there was only death. Jesus, fill this place. We need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.